Okay, so we are starting a new series today. We're starting the book or the chapter eight of Second Corinthians. And so what we're doing for the next five weeks, so basically this week and then the month of March, is we are looking at gospel generosity, how to give like a Christian. And we're also doing a project alongside this series that we want to invite each person into. Um, We are going to, um, as part of learning about generosity, as part of reflecting on generosity um, as as given by God's grace, we are going to partner with Mary's Place and their day center that we have some insider um, people at. Um, And we're going to raise some money for them um, to provide, or basically it's sort of a, sort of a grant fund um, to be able to provide moving expenses for women and children um, as they, you know, make, make the transition from homelessness to having a home. And a lot of us um, who, who haven't even experienced homelessness know that moving expenses, first month's rent, last month's rent, deposit, uh, just all of that can add up significantly and how much more for those who are going from homelessness. And so um, what we want to do is partner with them um, to, pr- to be able to provide assistance, um, whether it's help with movers or help with the deposit, um, those sorts of things. So uh, I just want to plant that seed in your brain as we move forward in this series. Um, be pray- praying about it. I think just take this first week um, to, to just... Just think about it, um, you know, think about your budget for March. Um, think about ways that you might be able to, uh, you know, set aside any amount. It's, we're not asking for a specific amount at all. Um, we're just, we just want to invite us as we reflect on generosity, as we reflect on God's goodness to us, um, invite all of us into um, this project. So, so yeah, that's something that's going to happen. Um, As far as the series goes, these are five weeks on how to give like a Christian in light of the gospel. Um, And it's set in the context of Paul reminding this church in Corinth about the collection that he is taking up for poor persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. So we get to sort of benefit from that. So I want to just set some context and introduce us um, as we... Before we read the passage, before we get into the scripture, uh, and say where we're at. We are at the resolution of a conflict. Um, things are good right now between Paul and Corinth. Uh, the Corinthians have repented of their disrespect for Paul, and Paul has expressed confidence in them, as we saw in verse 16 of chapter 7. We're sort of at a nice breathable moment in this interaction. And if you guys have been with us for the, the duration of the Corinthian letters, there are many moments that are difficult and where we, we've witnessed tension between him and this church that he started. Um, but right now, things are kind of good, and it's great. It's sort of like 
when you're, and I hate to say this again, but when you're watching Gilmore Girls, <laughs> it's that moment when Lorelai finally starts to date Luke. Sorry if that's a spoiler for anyone. But you're just like, oh, finally I can like relax while I'm watching. I can lay back and not sit on the edge of my seat waiting for this. So that's where we're at. We're at a good place. Um, so Paul considers this time, this opportunity, to change the subject to that of this collection. And so I just want to explain this collection for you guys um, real quick, and then we'll read the passage and pray together. So you can read smatterings about this collection. Um, it's otherwise known as mi the Ministry for the Saints in Jerusalem. Um, you can read about this throughout Paul's letters and in the book of Acts. It was a really cool project. So it was close to Paul's heart. He started it. Um, and what he wanted to do was he wanted to display intercultural, interracial, and interchurch unity and solidarity. So what was happening was the Christians in Jerusalem were experiencing persecution um, from their Jewish counterparts, and therefore they were entering into suffering and poverty. And so Paul, being the apostle to the Gentile churches, um, non-Jewish churches, he encouraged them to come to the aid of those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were experiencing this poverty. And so he wanted these new churches that he was starting in all these areas outside of Israel. He wanted to promote um, a missionally minded focus, an outward focused mindset in their hearts. Um, not only for unity, but for the gospel. He, he wanted there to be an outward looking vision in all of these new churches. And he also knew what it was like to be persecuted and be the persecutor of believers. And so he can relate with both sides. And so he wanted this to be a focus in all of these new churches. And so the Corinthians, the church that Paul is writing to now, um, they, were, they were in on this thing. And a year ago, as we'll find out, um, next week, they signed on. They, they said, let us be involved. This sounds great. Um, but since then, and maybe because of this rift that they had with Paul, they sort of lost, they kind of stalled, and, and things didn't happen the way they committed to. And so now that Paul has, you know, addressed their sin against him, now that they've repented of their sin against Paul, the dust has settled. Paul thinks now is a good time to return to this subject and give Corinth a chance to rekindle their efforts in this project. And as I was reading this passage, I, I couldn't get this scene from Lord of the Rings out of my head. Um, it's in Fellowship of the Ring when Bilbo is about to depart to Rivendell and he may not, he may not return. Um, but he's having a hard time getting, uh, getting rid of the ring because he's had it for 50 years. Um, it's kind of become a part of him. And in, a, in the heat of the moment when Gandalf is encouraging him to release hold of this ring, 
he kind of accuses Gandalf of wanting to take it for himself. And I'm sure most of you have seen this movie, but Gandalf receives that accusation. He kind of like gets really pissed off. And he, I think it's more the cinematography, but Gandalf kind of grows into a giant Gandalf. But I think it's just the angle. But <laughs> he just says, how dare you accuse me of this? I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And um, Bilbo quickly repents and, and gives Gandalf a hug. It's a very sweet moment. And then Bilbo kind of just goes, well, okay, and just grabs his staff and starts heading for the door. And Gandalf, <laughs> Gandalf goes, Bilbo, you still have the ring in your pocket as Bilbo's about to leave. And this whole thing's been about him with the ring. And so he, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess I still have to go through with this. So he slowly you know, takes it out of his pocket and you know, kind of falls off his hand and slams on the ground. And then he feels the weight of relief and, and, he, and he leaves. This is sort of that moment. Corinth and Paul have had this big blow up and they have since repented and, and said, you're right, Paul, we're with you. And now Paul is like, okay, thank you for the repentance, but there's still something, there's still something you got to do and something you committed to. So are you going to do it? That's kind of where we're at right now. Um, for Paul, this right now, as he changes the subject to the collection, is an opportunity for Corinth to demonstrate their love. Yes, they voiced repentance, but now they, now they can prove it. They can actually walk it out. So, in classic Paul fashion, rather than lay down the law and demand their renewal of commitment, he methodically plots a theology of giving over two whole chapters. And we get to benefit from that. So in this first week, we're talking about giving out of love. We are reminded of the right motivation for giving, which is God's ridiculous, powerful grace. The word grace appears in these nine verses five times. So we ask the question, how can we as Christians give out of love? This passage tells us it's by God's grace. Both in his kindness in saving us and his enabling us. He doesn't just save us and say, okay, go ahead and be generous. He saves us by his grace and then he works in our hearts by his grace on a daily basis to create in us a desire and an ability to give. And that's what we see in this passage. So as far as an outline goes, verses 1 through 5, we get a real-life example of God's grace working directly in the human heart. It's amazing. And then in verses 6 through 8, in light of this example, Paul then suggests Corinth 
take this chance to illustrate their love. And then finally in verse 9, we get a, a glance at Jesus, the source of grace himself. So let's go ahead and read it. It's verses 1 through 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open up our hearts to your word by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Speak to us directly, Lord. Uncover things, Lord, that we've been keeping for ourselves. Uncover things in our hearts, Lord, that we need to release to you. Thank you for this example and, and gospel account. May we learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in verses 1 through 5, Paul begins with an example. He is writing from Macedonia. So he's coming from Macedonia to Corinth. Uh, Macedonia is a region north of Corinth. And you may have heard of some of the cities that uh, he was involved in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Those are all in Macedonia. Um, Macedonia is a real place, by the way. Um, my landlord's wife is from Macedonia. So just keep that in mind. It's a real place. Um, my old high school pastor used to always side note and say, this is a real place. <laughs> but this place um, is where Paul is. And it's where the churches and even Paul himself have experienced massive hardship. And we've seen that in this book, and we see it in Acts. And this was most likely related to persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And this persecution resulted in social and economic ostracism. Which is interesting because it's, it's exactly the sort of suffering the Christians in Jerusalem were enduring. And so this is, they can relate. The Macedonians can relate with what is going on in Jerusalem with these Christians, um, the ones that Paul is raising money for. Um, but it's, it's the Macedonians' response to this hardship that just pumps Paul up. It's, it's awesome. 
What did the grace of God at work in these lives look like? Remember, these are people who are dealing with intense poverty and persecution. We see in verse 2 that they are filled with joy. They are focused on the needs of others. They are giving of what possessions they have sacrificially. They are intentional and proactive about serving others. And they are absolutely devoted to God and his will for them. It's just incredible. And Paul is very shocked. And in verse 1, he attributes all of this example, all of these characteristics that are being displayed by these people that are experiencing such difficulty. He attributes all of it to the grace of God. In verse 1, he says, We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to these churches. Look at this, um, sort of like a math equation in verse 2. We see that a severe test of affliction plus exuberant joy plus rock-bottom poverty equals lavish generosity. And you're just like, what? That doesn't even make sense. For them to be in dire straits and yet be filled with joy enough to think about the needs of others? Paul sees that as God's grace given to them. He's not saying, hey, Corinth, look at these people. Look how amazing they are. He's saying, and he's not, certainly not saying, why can't you be more like them? He's not the annoying parent saying, come on, Johnny, why can't you be more like Sarah? She's, she's actually doing stuff for mommy, you know? He's not being like that. What he's saying is, hey, look what God can do in your life. No matter the circumstances, no matter what you're dealing with, look at the grace of God that can, that can erase and overshadow your circumstances and create in you a heart for others. Whoa. And he was there. Paul was there. He says in verse 3, as I can testify. He watched this happen. The grace of God at work in people's lives. He was blown away. These people blew the Apostle Paul's mind. That seems like it would be hard to do. Like, shock the Apostle Paul. But they did. He wasn't even going to ask them for help. He says, um, begging, he, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this. They got up in his face and demanded to be allowed to help. And that word favor, he says, um, they begged us for the favor. That's the same word for grace, as we see in the rest of this passage. There's something fishy going on here that would even shock the suffering servant, Paul. Who does this? Look back at that equation. Where do you think they got this joy in the face of the harshest of circumstances? These are people that knew experientially, not just mentally, not just an ascent. These are people that knew the gospel. 
that knew the goodness of God. They breathed it. The good news that Jesus was alive was all they had. They knew that their lives were no longer their own, that anything big or little they had to give was no longer theirs anyways, and that they'd been given everything by the very person who purchased them with his blood. Do we get the gospel like that? Like they got it? Is it relatively speaking all we have? And I want to encourage us that if God can turn the attention of those in extreme suffering to have concern for other people, he can also turn the hearts of those who, like most of us, are just doing okay. The key is not the circumstances. It's knowing we need the grace of God in our lives. Here in America, as opposed to other places where Christians are experiencing severe persecution, but here in America, thankfully, we don't. We don't experience that much persecution because of our faith. So we can relate more with Corinth here than Macedonia. But just because we don't get ostracized for our faith doesn't mean God isn't providing for our every need. He is. He is your provider. He's provided you everything from your opportunities to your family to your job. It doesn't mean we're any less desperate for the grace of God in our lives. In some ways, we should be more desperate because it's harder for us to see that need for God. And I love verse 5 in this process. It's key. Read it with me. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. The Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord. Only then did God call them to this ministry, to this service, to this giving. You see how this is not just about giving money? Giving of ourself should precede and accompany the giving of our money, of our possessions. Um, one way I've found in my life to practically explore this and where my heart is at uh, in relation to this is, is when I encounter someone who is asking for money, like on the street, or, um, or even when I encounter like a need, like a cause. I, need, I examine myself and, I, and I, I see that there's a temptation in me to just, to just do something, the smallest I can do so that I can keep walking. To, to maybe give a sandwich or whatever, and obviously none of those things are bad, but am I willing to give of more than that? Am I willing to perhaps sit with this person for 20 minutes? Is my time, am I clinging on to my time so much that I'm using money to, to be able to walk by? And I've noticed in myself that, that what, I, <laughs> what I have to do then is before I even interact with this person or this whatever is going on, I need to give my heart to the Lord and say, okay, I'm, 
I'm willing to, to spend time with this person. I'm willing to invite them for dinner. I'm willing to relationally give to them more than just, you know, do something small so I can go about my business. And that's just a practical way to think about it and to examine myself. But the giving of our money, of our time, should be preceded by a willingness to give of our whole self. And also in verse 5, we see it is full devotion to Jesus that is first priority before committing to others. It says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, to us. We can easily become overspent in our giving of ourselves for others or for a cause. And some people have a tendency to become like a savior to someone, to bear the burden. But there's really only one savior. As believers in Jesus, we need to be rooted in Jesus and allow him to guide those commitments. This also keeps us from identifying with any one cause over our identification as Christ's beloved. As Christians, that is what we are before we are anything else. It's intimidating to think about giving yourself to people, to a person, to something, and it should be. But with God, it's different. It's not the same because with God, it's what we are created to do. We're only created to worship one person, and that is God. Jesus is worth giving our complete self to. He's a good God. Remember his invitation from Matthew 11. He says, come to me, everybody, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word yoke there is is the device that is put on an animal who does the, far, the shoot, plowing. That's work. Plowing is work. That's why oxen did it and not people. And Jesus is saying, come to me and I will put you to work. But it's work that is restful because you're meant to do it. You're created to do this. You're created to give yourself to God completely, utterly, totally. And he'll give everything back in order to do his work in the world. That's the beauty of this. So Paul turns and he speaks directly to Corinth here in verses 6 through 8. He says, accordingly, in accordance with this Amazing example. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, 
And if that's different from yours, I'll explain in a minute. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Paul has given the example of the Macedonians, and now he makes his apostolic suggestion. Once again, we see that this, for Paul, in verses 6 and 7, is an act of grace. He sees this project, this collection, this ministry as God's hand moving in the world by his body, the church. And he utilizes Titus, as we see in verse 6, because it makes sense. There's a few reasons. Titus started the fundraising for this project in Corinth a year ago, as we'll find out. Uh, or we just found out. He started it. There you go. Um, Titus was just there. He delivered the painful letter, which was the letter that prompted their repentance, their, um, you know, turning of their ways. And he witnessed their repentance. He was there. He, he, he saw their heart for Paul. And he brought that heart back to Paul. And he explained what was going on. And so Paul says, you should be the guy to take this letter too. So go ahead. He's just the right guy for the job. So Paul asks them to rejoin this effort. But as we see in verse 7, he does it in sort of a, a unique way. He mentions and sort of makes a list in verse 7 of their most cherished qualities and where those qualities should lead. And like Justin said, I think it was last week or the week before, he does this with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. Um, basically, he, he compliments them one by one and implies that at the end of this list, there should be sacrificial generosity. But is that the case? And so when he speaks of the Corinthians' faith, speech, knowledge, he's likely alluding to their fascination with the spiritual gifts. And if you were with us when we studied 1 Corinthians, there's a big passage on the spiritual gifts where Paul is, is basically hammering home the point that the spiritual gifts are not for you. They're for other people. And you should use them for other people. And their problem was that they were using them in a selfish way. So that's why Paul had to remind them over and over in 1 Corinthians to do these things out of love. And then we see this earnestness. And he, he actually celebrated their earnestness or diligence um, back in chapter 7. But in the next verse, he sort of uses the Macedonians' earnestness as a comparison to say, Okay, you got earnestness, you got diligence, you've turned and, and you're heading toward the right way, but is it relatively valuable? And then, this is sort of a grammatical difficulty, but your version might say, in our love for you. Um, other versions say, in the love that we inspired in you. And there's just kind of debate on what he says there, so I'm not going to prove one way or the other, but as far as the flow of what he's saying, it seems to make more sense for him to say, the love we inspired in you. So giving them, you know, giving them the fact that they have love, and it's, it's being shown, but is it 
is the climax of this love, generosity. So finally, he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This word excel, it's the same word as in verse 2, which I use sort of as an equal sign, but it, it's, it's the same word when he says overflowed in verse 2 of the Macedonians. So basically what he's saying is the Macedonians' joy, affliction, and poverty welled up to lavish generosity. And then he's, he kind of turns and he asks the Corinthians to examine what all of their spirituality is welling up to. What good is it doing for other people? I love something my dad, who's a pastor and not like Tara said uh, in a sermon a while back. Just a simple statement. He said, love is always the sign of spiritual growth. Love is always the sign of spiritual growth. If someone is growing in their spiritual life, in their, in their walk with God, you will always see love. If it's not there, there's probably not spiritual growth. And so what he's basically saying is, examine yourself to see that your spirituality is welling up to this kind of thing. And that's always a good litmus test. Um, no longer how, no, no matter how long you've been a Christian. So Paul is walking the line here between telling them what to do and performing positive peer pressure to tell them what to do. <laughs> Which, in, in verse 8, he says is not the same thing. He's not giving them a command, he says, but he's giving them an opportunity. He's showing that this project, this commitment that they've sort of stalled, is their opportunity to show that the love they have is real. It's a real opportunity to glorify God and illustrate to the watching world his grace. And he wants them to take this chance to prove that their spoken love is a real love. So finally, he redirects them and their attention, and our attention, to the resource for how we give like the Macedonians did. In verse 9. Pay attention to the words you and your in this verse, because that's hugely important to put ourselves there. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So just like Paul did in chapter 5, verse 21, he, in that verse he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just like he did there, Paul pens a one-sentence gospel account in the terms that he's been using, in the argument he's been making. Basically, he applies the gospel to the subject at hand. In chapter 5, verse 21, it was the gospel in view of how we are reconciled to God. And here, 
in chapter 8, verse 9, it is how we are made spiritually rich enough to be able to be holistically generous. So just like Jesus became sin so that we could be made righteous, Jesus also became poor so that we could be made rich. This is why the Macedonians could, like in verse 5, give themselves wholly to God. Something big had happened in their heart. The grace of Jesus had been made real to them. What we see here is that generosity of possessions and of self isn't just a good thing to do. It's not something to check off our list for those list makers out there like me. And it most certainly isn't a way to earn God's favor. What it is, is it's a part of God's very nature. He gave of himself for us. He was rich. Jesus was freaking loaded. <laughs> Remember, his life didn't start as a kid in Bethlehem. Before that, he was the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, eternally existent, he had it all. He created the world. He had equality with God himself. And yet, he did not cling to these riches. As we see in some of the most amazing passages in the Bible, Colossians 1, Philippians 2. There are these stories, these hymns, these beautifully written paragraphs on the fact that Jesus gave everything. He made the socioeconomic suicidal leap from the throne of the living God to a Roman execution device. Uh, there's a pastor named Alan Redpath who appropriately asks the question, who can measure the gap between the throne of God and the cross? How vast is that gap? And so this act of the truest generosity purchased something. Not only our reconciliation with God, but the truest riches we can ever have. Paul elsewhere calls these riches the unsearchable riches of Christ. And these riches are now ours when we are in him. Because of his poverty, because of what he did, we are filthy rich. And these, these are riches that won't be affected by hardship or being laid off or the economy crashing or anything, including death. Jesus described these riches as being those that neither moth nor rust can destroy. And they are worth investing in. He's not saying by Jesus' poverty you can become a billionaire. But what would that buy you anyway? 
Would it buy you peace? Would it buy you security? Would it buy you contentment or love? No, it wouldn't. And if you're not a Christian today, this is one way of explaining what we call the gospel or the good news. Jesus Christ, your creator, became a poor human being for you so that you might become rich in a more real way than you've ever imagined. Peace, hope, joy, eternal friendship with God himself. That's what Jesus purchased for you. Won't you accept this gift today? And for all of us, this is the source of our generosity. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's like, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But have you looked at it recently? It's pretty crazy. When we are in Christ and grow in our understanding of that reality, we can look at our possessions, including our money, our energy, our time, and we can say they are nothing in comparison with the riches we have been given. We can then give our lives, entire lives, freely back to God. And then he can make us free to be all in for others. Because we are no longer holding on, to the, holding on for dear life, what we don't own anymore in the first place. That's the source. That's how we can give out of love, is by staring and continuing to delve deeper into the reality of the gospel. The gospel is not the A, B, C of Christianity. It is the A through Z. It only gets deeper the more you understand it. But we also see that because Jesus is the source, it means we have to stay close to him. Sometimes we want our generosity to be something that we can budget and do and then we can be done with it. We can sort of check it off our list and, and move on. But in reality, our generosity comes from Jesus. And as we cling to him, as we become more dependent on him, as we recognize him for who he is in our lives, he then will, as we see in verse 5, by the will of God, give us things to do, things to give, more than we ever thought we had to give. These people in Macedonia, objectively, they got nothing to give. They're poor they're down in the dirt. They got nothing. And yet, their joy in Jesus overflowed to a wealth of generosity. That doesn't make sense. But it happened. And we can participate in that as well, but it's by God's grace. And we need him. It's like a well. You can draw as much water as you want for others and for yourself but it's only as good as how long you stay close to that well. So let's stay close to that source. 
Let's rejoice and celebrate this gospel. We here, I don't know if it's Seattle or, or just me, but we've lost the art of celebrating this. Praising God for the gospel. That's the first thing. The kindness of God is what leads us to repentance, turning back to him, the kindness of God, the beauty of that. May we just bask in that this morning. May we bask in that this week. Every morning, wake up and say, thank you, God, for the gospel. May it apply to my life today at work, whatever you got going. Let's read that verse again and then worship and thank Jesus for what he's done. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you that though you were rich, you did not cling to those riches like we do ours. You gave them up for us. And thank you that because of that, we can give our whole selves to you because you've purchased everything we need. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to thank Jesus for that as well. Because it's for you. If you're, if you're wanting to accept that gift of the most true riches you could ever even imagine, that are eternal, that don't fade, then I invite you to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. There's going to be people up front here during this last set. Nick and Cindy. If you want to pray with someone to receive Jesus, here's a chance. Today, Scripture says, is the day of salvation. And God has purchased it for you by bearing the burden that we couldn't bear. And Lord, may we grow in understanding of that grace more and more. May the gospel permeate our minds and our hearts. May we draw near to you in order that we might have what you have to give to others. And make us generous. May we be a church that is outward focused, missionally minded, for the needs of our city, for the needs of our neighbors, our family. Lord, I pray that this series, this month of dwelling on, on generosity that's rooted in grace, may that change us. Just like the gospel has the power of God to accomplish salvation, it has the power to change our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. So as we conclude...
not conclude. We're, we're not done yet. 